On my left thumb, I have a long scar that runs from my thumbnail down and across my knuckle, down almost to where my thumb begins. It's where I had a number of stitches because as a nine-year-old boy, my dad had told me in Boys Brigade, which was kind of a Christian version of Boy Scouts, when I was whittling my spoon to get my badge, I don't remember what badge it was, uh, don't cut towards myself. Nine, and nine-year-old Steve's not radically different from late 40s Steve. <laughs> um, and uh, I know, not a day over 35. But um, So I ignored him, cut down, hit a knot on the wood, and the knife slipped and cut right down to the bone. And I remember in that moment... Uh, wondering, what do I do? Now, it should seem obvious as when blood's gushing out of you, but there was an immediate sense of shame because I knew I had ignored the warning my dad had given me. I knew I was not obeying him, and so while he was the one I needed to go to, he was head of a boys' brigade, he's the last person I wanted to go to because of the sense of shame of ignoring the warning, and now here's the cost. I'm paying the price, and I was paying it severely and so I didn't go to anyone until I was actually about to pass out uh, and there was a solid well-forming puddle of blood beneath me how well do you do (laughs) paying attention to warnings and when you get caught out so to say how well do you handle it in that moment are you filled with a sense of shame I can almost guarantee that you are because that's the human condition do you humble yourself Or do you wait until humiliation must arrive before there's any kind of change of behavior? That really drives us to the kind of question that we'll be tackling this morning, and that's really how teachable are you? How teachable is my heart? How teachable is your heart before very difficult things of the text and things that could actually produce a fair amount of shame? In you. It's hard because some of the things we're going to look at this morning actually would involve sins, not just done by you, but done among you. Sins committed by you with others in this even very body or in your immediate family. And so it's hard to wrestle with that. It's hard in that moment. And so I just want you to pause for a moment. I want you to think about what I was just telling you about nine-year-old Steve and how you look at that little boy with a sense of pity and sympathy, but also a mindset that says this, Get over your shame and go get help before you pass out and make it worse. So deal with it before you make it worse. Paul, running into this kind of mindset of a failure to heed warning, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll pick up with him in verse 19. We'll read down through the first four verses of chapter 13. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, 
He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Teachable communities are repentant communities that embrace trusted ministry. On January 28, 1986, the Challenger space shuttle exploded over the skies of Florida while being watched by millions of people on the ground and on live television. I remember vividly sitting in my kitchen at home. I'd had a doctor's appointment or something that morning. And so all my class and our entire school was in a huge assembly, Edmondson Heights Elementary School, and they watched it happen live. I remember watching it live from my home. The explosion was caused by the formation of ice around the space shuttle's O-rings, which were used to separate the rocket boosters from the shuttle. Bob Ebling was an engineer with NASA, and he had seen that there could be a potential problem with these O-rings on the booster rockets. He had warned them that extremely cold weather would prevent the O-rings from sealing properly. It'd cause an explosion. He and another engineer requested from NASA officials that the shuttle's launch be delayed again in order for there to be better weather. The delay was initially granted, but later dismissed by the executives who were under pressure to get the shuttle into space. When Bob complained, one of the executives for the Challenger mission said to him, and I quote, this is not your burden to bear, Bob. Shuttle took off against Bob's insistence only to explode midair 73 seconds after takeoff. Seven astronauts, one of whom was a teacher who had won a seat on a NASA educational program, were killed in the accident. Neville Chamberlain famously stood shaking Adolf Hitler's hand, came back to England and said there will be peace for our time. He was ignoring all of the obvious warning signs that would lead to and point to the fact that Hitler was actually deceiving him. You know, Hitler had actually famously written in his own book, Mein Kampf, that he viewed treaties as a way to control your enemy until you could dominate them. Neville Chamberlain ignored all of that, ignored the warning signs, proceeded forward in what we would simply call wishful thinking. It was out of a heart of political ambition to be viewed as a peacemaker. Ultimately, as we all know, the world has plunged into one of the darkest times it had ever experienced. Th officials in Thailand had been warned by a government official years prior that if there was ever a significant earthquake, that the result would be a significant tsunami and they should start putting into place things necessary to prevent mass damage. The Thailand officials were concerned about how this would impact the vacation and tourist industry. So they actually imprisoned this man, tried to label him as mentally insane, and actually restricted his movements within the country, and he could go to no tourist spot because he was viewed and labeled as a threat to the economy of the nation. Less than 10 years later, an earthquake hits, and the Thailand officials had gambled away 230,000 lives when the tsunami hit. What do all these have in common? Well, they all have this in common. The warning of the threat was seen as insignificant when compared to the cost of change. The way I presently feel in this moment doesn't seem to match the danger you're telling me exists. When my dad said, Steve, don't cut towards yourself when you're trying to whittle this way, that seemed insignificant in the moment to my nine-year-old brain when I'm trying to make a spoon to get my badge as the most expedient way to get around this knot in this piece of wood, and I've got a scar now to this day to prove I was wrong. When a warning is given to us and, it, and there's a dissonance, a disconnect between our present experience or our present feelings, 
we will largely ignore those warnings. Spiritually, you see it in the life of Peter. Peter is a great spiritual example of ignored warnings. The lead up to the crucifixion of Christ is frankly one of the most stunning of those moments. Jesus warns the disciples, one of you are going to betray me. None of them understood it was Judas. They all said, is it me? Peter boldly claims later in the garden, I will never betray you. Jesus warns him now what we could perceive as a second warning. Actually, Peter, before the night's over, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. Peter ignores that warning, simply doesn't believe it. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John off to the side and says, would you watch and pray with me? And Jesus goes a little distance away from them, clearly enough to be overheard, as this is recorded in the Gospels. He's sweating great drops of blood. Uh, he's praying extensively. He's asked his three closest friends to pray with him. And what does Peter do with this warning that, that such significant events are about to happen? Peter falls asleep, ignoring every warning. Because there's a dissonance in how Peter feels. Peter says, I love you, Jesus. I would never betray you, Jesus. I'm loyal to you, Jesus. I'm a close friend to you, Jesus. And so Peter is taking the warning. He's filtering it through his present feelings, his present circumstances, and he doesn't buy it. And so he ignores it. We know famously, we find Peter later not just denying Christ, but denying him with profanity even, out of his own cowardice. And he doesn't even have the courage, the affection, or the love to be present at the cross when Jesus is dying. Teachable communities. We could even make it very personal, right? Teachable people, teachable hearts. Steve is teachable when I'm repentant, and I will embrace truth from others. You, as a church and as individuals, will be a teachable community when you live with repentant hearts. Remember this, salvation is a one-time event, but it sets you on a course of life of everyday repentance. It's not a one and done, but it's a life pattern now of turning from sin and always looking and turning to Christ. Teachable communities are repentant communities that embrace trusted ministry. And so we want to walk through what, what Paul has to say to this, frankly, unteachable community. Now, we've spent a lot of time over the last two weeks thinking about what does it mean to do trusted ministry. And so I'm building on that understanding. I'm building on the understanding that you remember on some level and you're aware of and you at least were processing through in the sermons that trusted ministry operates with spiritual endurance. Uh, it stays the course, right? Spiritual or trusted ministry operates in the Spirit's power. Uh, it, 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 Paul here, we've got signs and wonders. It's proof. It's God's power, not my power, right? And trusted ministry is driven by love. Now, Paul puts it into practice. I'm not going to take a lot of time here this morning, but some of you are having to deal with unteachable people. And so as we walk through the text, I want us to both learn how to do it, how to do what Paul is doing, and I also want us to learn, is, that, is it me, right? We, we actually want to have the same kind of humble heart that the disciples had sitting around the Last Supper when Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, and they're saying, is it me? We need to be that heart cognizant. Is it I? And so we want to learn both sides. And so I just want to point out to you, if you're going to deal with unteachable people specifically, you're trying to communicate truth of God's word, you're trying to disciple, trying to counsel, trying to evangelize, first thing you must do is you need to deal in honesty with them. Speak in truth. If you look back down, Paul doesn't hold back. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. Paul doesn't avoid the difficult things. Have you been thinking all along we've been defending ourselves? That's actually not what's going on. It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and for your upbuilding, beloved. I fear. And Paul's very honest and vulnerable here. He, and he gives three fears. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. A second fear, that you may not find me as you wish. 
And there perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. All of what Paul is saying here is my biggest concern, Corinth, is that you're unrepentant. My biggest concern is though the sin has been made obvious, though the sin has been spoken, though the sin has been done, the, the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, is convicting you, I should not be doing these things. As of yet, you have not gotten on your face before God, confessed that you've done these things, asked His forgiveness, and then gone and done something different. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just saying, I did it and I shouldn't have. Repentance isn't even just saying, I did it, I shouldn't have, and I feel bad about it. Repentance is, I did it, I shouldn't have, I feel bad about it, I need Jesus' forgiveness, and I'm going to stop doing it. That's repentance. And his concern is that this church is unrepentant. He knows that there is some degree, and if you were to look back, that's an interesting phrase here that he says he fears that God may humble him. In chapter 9, verses 3 through 4, he basically says, I'm afraid that I'd be humiliated. It's the same word. I'm afraid I'm going to be humiliated if when I get there, you haven't repented over your selfishness and gone back to taking up this offering for the church in Jerusalem. Paul understood that repentance has fruits. Uh, talks cheap. Jesus says, how will you know them? How will you know who's repentant and who's not? You will know them by their fruits. And so Paul's concerned that there won't be this fruit of now generous giving, fulfilling their obligation and their commitment, but rather that they won't give. In chapter 10, verse 1, he uses the, the phrase that they're accusing him of. They say that Paul's strong when he's gone and humble when he's here. Really what they're saying, he seems powerful when he's gone and humiliated when he's here. And now Paul's using the same play on words. I'm afraid that when I come, I'll be humiliated in front of you by God. What does he mean? All of it's always tied to the same thing. Paul's humiliation is tied directly to their unrepentance. That's what he's concerned about. What does John say? I have no greater joy than knowing this, that my children walk in truth, right? You know what the flip side is for anyone in authority? It doesn't really matter who it is. Anyone in spiritual authority, mom, dad, it could be grandparents, it certainly could be elders in your life, anyone in spiritual authority, the flip side of the joy that comes for knowing that people walk in truth and they're following God, the flip side is the humiliation, the absolute sorrow, the crushing of their soul and their spirit when people don't. And Paul's just dealing in truth with them. He said, I'm concerned when I come, it's going to be a repeat of the fiasco when I was just there. He's dealing honestly with them, not to threaten them, but to be clear about the sins that are there and the need for repentance. When you and I are faced with unteachable people, we need to be honest about the sins that are going on. This is profoundly difficult because of exactly what Paul is citing here. They will tend to attack the one who's speaking truth to them. Dealing with unteachable people simply makes you more vulnerable to assault. I'm going to say that again. Dealing with unteachable people opens you up to more attacks from them. You might remember way back several weeks ago, we asked the question, what is the number one way false teachers and or Satan try to get an inroads into people's hearts? You remember what it was? They attack the messengers they should be trusting. It's not a debate over truth. It's not an enforcement of your own affections. They attack the messengers. And dealing with unteachable people, dealing in truth, simply will open you up to more attack, but you must do it. Secondarily, you must deal in integrity. You can think of honesty as words you say, integrity are actions you do. He says exactly what he's going to do. This is the third time I'm coming to you. 
Verse 1, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that's ironic because they've believed all kinds of evil things about Paul and there's never been two or three witnesses. But Paul is telling them, I'm going to act in integrity. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit. If I come again, I will not spare them. Unteachable people use all kinds of sinful means to get their way. They use emotional manipulation, anger, yelling, withdrawal relationally. And that's not even mentioning all the sins that Paul just listed that they will put at their disposal. Many of those in verse 20 that they use specifically against him personally. You must remember, though, that when you're in the position that Paul's in and you're trying to minister to an unteachable person or unteachable people, you must remember that your weapons are not carnal. You will be tempted to return their anger with anger, their wrath with wrath, their vitriol with vitriol, their slander with slander, their gossip with gossip, their evil speech and the accumulating of a group to support you, uh, factionalism and division. You'll be tempted to do all those same things. Paul says no. Few things will demonstrate that it's God's strength and not our strength. Few things will demonstrate that more than you operating in integrity. And that's what Paul says. You haven't afforded me two or three witnesses, but I will follow the plan that Jesus laid out in Matthew chapter 18. If you've got a problem with somebody, you go talk to them. If they don't resolve it, then you take somebody with you. If it's not resolved, then you go before two or three witnesses. In other words, Paul said, it's not just my opinion. We're going to work through this the way Jesus said to work through it. And when he's saying that, he says, I'm dealing with you in integrity, and I'm going to deal with you in Christ's power. Paul is willing to be honest in the face of people that are lying. Thirdly, then, thirdly, you need to deal in morality. Morality is those moments of when your inner character is being revealed with outward actions. And he says, I'm going to deal with you in a very moral way. I'm going to deal with you with you in an upright way. And he's very open about two aspects of love here, stunningly enough. And it's really hard to love the unteachable and unrepentant. I don't know if you've dealt with people like this. I'm sure that you have. It's really hard to love them. You're warning them. They're ignoring you. They're, you're calling them out on sin. They know they sin. Jesus knows they've sinned. And they know before God they've sinned, but they deny the sin. It's really, really hard to love people like that, to not just get angry in those moments, to not just get discouraged or give up in those moments. And Paul is very open with how much this hurts. When he uses that phrase, be humbled again or humiliated again, he's telling them, I still love you. You know why I think most people don't follow Matthew 18? Just experientially, Steve's opinion. Why don't people do that? Why aren't people willing to go to someone who's sinned against them, has hurt them, and then pursue it if, they, if needed, right? The, the reality is there's lots of conflicts that we should handle. Let love cover a multitude of sins and forbear one another in love, forgiving one another. There's lots that way, but there are significant sins that we need to go. Matthew 18, I am coming to you. You've hurt me. You've sinned against me. Uh, they don't listen. You bring somebody else. You go two, three. You know why most people don't want to do that? Most people, just experientially, Steve's opinion, lots of motives. Number one motive I've run into, they've already hurt you once. The last thing in the world you want to do is give them another shot. Because to go to someone who's hurt you so deeply and say, you've hurt me very deeply, you've sinned against me, and to do it the right way is profoundly difficult and painful. And Paul is willing to love these people this way. And he's open about who's really calling the shots. The one who's calling the shots is Jesus, not him. You seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him 
by the power of God. Paul is not going to avoid a very personally hard thing to do, a personally difficult thing to do, a personally costly thing to do, just because it's painful, hard, and costly. He's going to do it because Jesus loves them, and he's been called by God to love them too. He's very clear that through his weakness and sorrow and broken vessel ministry, they are experiencing the love and pursuit of God. That's Paul's side. And we've dealt a lot with trusted ministry. I just wanted to show you the practical outworkings of what it's like to do ministry with endurance, what it's like to do ministry in God's power, and what it's like to do ministry through God's love. Teachable communities, though. Teachable communities are repentant communities that embrace trusted ministry. And so we want to then think about our hearts. Your heart, my heart. Every one of us in this room, in some areas, are unteachable. Oh, no, Steve, I am humble before you. Whatever Jesus wants to know. Now, usually, when, before I can finish that sentence, the Holy Spirit convicts me of an area where I don't want to hear about it. Right? A blind spot, an uncomfortable moment, a trial, a difficulty that I was not prepared for. I was telling somebody this morning, uh, over this past year, uh, I, I absolutely would have thought of myself as a pretty empathetic person. I went to get a counseling degree because I love people, want to get involved with people, want to walk through hurt with them, want to walk through life with them, want to see God change them. I'm still passionate about all those things. I can flat out tell you, yesterday was the one-year anniversary of my wife's diagnosis with cancer. This Sunday a year ago was very different for our family. And so we are so thankful. It has forever changed me, though. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, I, I, and I don't use this lightly. PTSD is real. It is real. There are places I don't want to go back to yet. I'm not ready. And, and I'm okay admitting that to you. It's hard for me to because it means I'm weak. But it, you're just changed. And you know what one of the things God was teaching me is I may have thought I was empathetic. I had some lessons to learn. And so I think even in areas where you and I tend to think, oh, I, I'm not saying I'm perfect there, right? I never would have said that. But I probably would have been unteachable. I probably would not have been as quick to read or think and study and ask the question, am I really an empathetic, compassionate, loving person the way Jesus is? And so he's taken me on a journey to show me I'm not. I say all that again to tell you this. I think every one of us, every one of us in this room wrestles with unteachability in some areas. I don't know what those are for you. I really don't. Jesus does. And he's on mission to grow and change us. And so we want to ask ourselves if we're like the Corinthians in this way. And so what are some marks of the unteachable? Well, the flip side of this passage with this heart of the Corinthian believer, um, I think it'd be easy to actually get to the end of them, of, of the Corinthians. We've studied through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians now. I think it'd actually be for easy for you and I to get to the end of this and say this is just another indicator of the incredibly unhealthy and strained relationship Paul had with this one church. Um, this is Corinthian uniqueness, and okay, and essentially ignore the warnings and again think it doesn't apply to me. But for the last couple of weeks, you might remember we contrasted this passage that Paul went through with another book, and it was in 1 Thessalonians. It's a very different church, and, and you may remember seeing all the same elements. I mean, it's an amazing thing because Thessalonians was written about five years before this. We saw that it's the same way Paul did ministry. But when you look at the Thessalonians, uh, there's a radically different response to Paul. Now, the Thessalonian church is probably the most persecuted church within the pages of the New Testament. 
They were suffering horrendously. Paul was worried about them, burdened for them. Uh, he couldn't go to them, and so he sent his, his right-hand guy, his son of the faith, Timothy, to go check on them. And Paul reflects upon this in 1 Thessalonians 3. I just want you to pay attention to the relational connection. Remember, the Corinthians, in some ways, are rejecting, despising, refusing Paul. But look how the Thessalonians responded to him. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. There was this in incredibly tender and affectionate relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Thessalonian church. There wasn't the strain, the conflict, the, the thinking evil of Paul, the, the character assassination of Paul, the dismissiveness of Paul, the willingness to get personal about Paul. None of that was present with the Thessalonians. And you want to ask why? And you should ask why? What is so different about the Corinthian church and the Thessalonian church. We know that Paul didn't take their money. We saw that last week. We know that Paul endured. We know that Paul did it in Christ's power. So he did it at the Corinthians, and yet there's rejection. They're both in the Greco-Roman culture. They're both cities where persecution takes place. They're both founded by Paul, and then he has to leave for a time. They both suffer under the influence of false teachers. There was plenty of them in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they actually came and said, Jesus returned and you missed it. And so there's so many similarities. What's the difference? Well, it's the way they responded to the truth. Not necessarily the truth of the gospel that lead them to salvation, but the truths of the gospel applied to their sanctification. Sanctification is that process where God is making a Christian more and more like Christ. It's a lifelong process. You have salvation. It's when you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ alone. You're saved. You have sanctification, it's a lifelong journey of being made to be like Christ. And then when you get to heaven, you die or Christ comes back and catches us away. You're glorified and the sin is all taken care of at that point. For now, we're not under the power of sin. We're not under the punishment of sin, but we're in the presence of sin. In glorification, we will then not even be in the presence of it any longer. What is the difference? So he writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, and he says it this way. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Think about that. Remember what he just said in chapter 13, verse 3 to the Corinthians? You seek proof that Christ is speaking to me, but he's weak in dealing with you. He's not weak in dealing with you, but he's powerful among you. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. In other words, the, the Corinthians said, mm, all this weakness, brokenness talk, I don't think I'm about that. That's not Jesus. The Thessalonians said, all this weakness, brokenness talk, man, that just so resonates with what my life is like as a Christian. This is the power of God. Tell me more, Paul. It's a radically different response. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Why is there such a dramatic difference in the relationship of Paul with the Thessalonians and Paul with the Corinthians? One group received the truth, and repented, not just for salvation, but for lasting change of their identity, their culture, their lifestyle, 
a willingness to suffer, and they were on mission for greater change. The other group, most importantly, has resisted the truth from Paul that deals with very serious heart issues. And their reaction to that, listen now, the reaction is to reject the truth, not love Paul, and question everything about him. This isn't a Paul problem. This isn't a truth problem. This isn't a culture problem. This is a heart problem. And so we want to learn from Paul, how do we do trusted ministry to unteachable people, regardless of the response. And I think that's actually why Thessalonians is so helpful, because we actually see this, the methods don't change. Because your confidence is not in the words of wisdom you share, but in the power of the gospel of Christ shared through you. It's not a method change, it's not a message change. But we also want to ask, if there's this level of resistance from the Corinthians, we'll be honest enough to ask, is that like me? Am I that nine-year-old boy? Am I the NASA official? Am I the Thailand officials? Am I Neville Chamberlain? Unless any of us think, well, we're smarter, wiser, more put together than those, those folks, and I'm more affectionate toward Jesus than the Corinthians, is any of us prepared to say we know and love Jesus better than Peter? Who ignored warnings? I, I dare not. I know. No way. And so... We can go back then, and we can look at these relational sins. This is the first one that he gives. He categorizes it for us in a couple of ways. Now, it's interesting if you were to be able to, if we had time to actually go to Galatians, uh, when you think of when he talks about fruits of the Spirit or works of the flesh. The first of these are word for word, same order from those works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. He lists them there as enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. In Galatians, works of the flesh is evidence not necessarily of lostness, but of believers who are selfish, and it comes out in conflict with other believers. Part of the reason community is so important is because it reveals our sins. It shows us who we really are. Uh, I'll never forget as a dorm supervisor in a Christian college, you could always immediately tell who were the uh, only children in their homes or like maybe the only boy in their home. And then they move into a dorm room with like five or six other guys and they do not know how to function with other people. Uh, it was always funny, the freshmen would get there first, <clears throat> an incoming freshman. And they walk into this room, you got all these bunk beds, you got a certain number of dressers. Like, really, anybody, you wouldn't have to be a mathlete to figure out what would be judicious drawer or closet space. Invariably, I'd have one or three freshmen that I'd then have all the upperclassmen return, and there's like nowhere to hang their clothes. There's no drawer space left. And they just consumed it all. They had no mindset of how do I live with other people. I have one guy, I've told you before, he came in and set up all his trophies. Like, you want to know what's not cool? Show up to college with all your high school trophies. This kid didn't understand it. He just wanted everybody to know how great he was. And you just have unaware people, and that's actually, that, and that's not true for everybody. I'm not shooting at only children. Like, take it easy, right? Like, some people are like, ah, oh, thank you, right? Take it, calm down, cool your jets, dial it back, come off the ledge a little bit. All I'm saying is this, living in community helps reveal your problems. And so Paul goes after these relational sins. 
First one he lists are quarreling and jealousy, and we can actually take them in couplets this way. Quarreling and jealousy, he addressed these in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 3, 3. What it really is, is out of their insecurities and their failure to rest in their identity of Christ, they were splitting apart into groups that made them feel stronger, more mature, and accepted. Uh, remember, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus, I'm of Apollos. I've got to find my identity in some celebrity, and that's who I'm with, I'm, that's, my, that's my guy, this is my person. Every, every evangelical group has this, they just do. Um, I went to this school or that school or the other school. I hold to this doctrine or that doctrine or this doctrine. This is my identity, right? And all those can be helpful sometimes for just defining, identifying. So I don't, I don't think titles are, and those things are bad. I just don't. But I think they can be twisted and they can become who you are. And that's what the Corinthians were. They were so insecure, so unsettled in their identity in Jesus that they needed to hitch their wagon to some celebrity, Apollos, Cephas, Paul, or Jesus. And that was not in a good way. Um, it's like, uh, I heard, I've heard so many guys over the years. They're like, I'm not an Arminian or a Calvinist. I'm a Biblicist. Like, neither of those think their truths are from Bible either. Like, get over yourself. Like, like, what's our problem, right? And so I'm of Jesus. I'm not of Paul, Apollos, or Peter, right? Like, that's who I am. I got to find my identity because you're insecure and you're selfish. And so it's not a way of defining doctrinal belief or a system to just help communicate, but it's actually who you are. And you can tell it because you can't get along with people that aren't just like you. This isn't, these are not major deals, right? It's not a difference of, well, Apollos teaches salvation by grace through faith alone, but Peter doesn't. No, they both believe that. And the result is out of our insecurities and our fears and our lack of rest of our identity in Jesus, we end up fighting, quarreling, jealousy. You know where it shows up the most today in the evangelical church is liberty issues. Oh, my word. COVID has revealed it didn't create, it revealed. And you can tell when somebody really understands liberty issues, there's times they're willing to give up their liberties. There's times they're willing to not give them up depending on the, on the circumstances. There's times they're willing to give them up depending upon the circumstances. They're all driven by love. But the last thing they do is they don't separate from somebody else over a non-gospel issue. The moment they feel like I've got to separate from you over this non-gospel issue, they have revealed that they're thinking wrongly. Corinthians. And so there's all kinds of quarreling and jealousy. Have they pursued unity or are they still at odds with people not like them in just the right way? What are the areas that just, oh, man, they're like the, that piece of sand or pebble in your shoe. What are the issues? You're like, oh, can't handle that. You know, what's interesting is in Ephesians it talks about chasing and it's a hard work. It's, um, there are people out there that love to run. Bless God for those people. Um, because it's hard work, right? And so it's hard work to chase unity. The natural bent of every one of us in this room will be disunity. It's hard to, you have to fight for it. You've got to go spend time with, have lunch with, hang out with people that you don't personally like. I just want to ask, do you chase unity hard after it with people that are not like you in just the right ways? Not, not in the ways that, that like, <laughs> like, 
I don't, I don't mind hanging out with so-and-so. I mean, he's tall and good-looking, and I'm short and a hobbit. Like, that don't really bother me. I don't care. But there are areas that make it hard for me to hang out with some people. I'm asking about those spots. I'm asking about those people. He moves on from that, though, and he goes to anger and hostility. Anger here is a volcanic kind of quick outburst that then subsides. You know, it's really hard to walk back from angry outbursts, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, fireworks were banned in Baltimore. You could use sparklers. Woo! So my buddy Brian would go to West Virginia with his family, and West Virginia, it was all legal, right? They didn't care, but let's blow some stuff up. So he'd come back with these M80s, and um, we'd save them from July 4th till Halloween. And I'm just going to be honest with you. A pumpkin with an M80 in it is a sight to behold. And to a 13-year-old and 14-year-old boy, this is like the funnest thing ever. I'll also tell you this, mailboxes don't respond well to M80s either. And I will also tell you that homeowners and the police don't respond well to either one of those. That's experiential. I am saying this to you. Blown up mailboxes and blown up pumpkins are not easy to put back together. Blown up at people is not easy to put back together. The damage is there. You can put the parts back. It's never going to look the same. These are angry outbursts. And it's kind of different. Now, I think what's interesting is as we grow older, I would hope we learn more maturity. And so if you're one that's prone to angry outbursts, and I'll just be honest with you, everybody in this room's got a button. We hit just the right button, you're going to blow up. Maybe as we mature, we kind of learn we don't angry outbursts to the person that's even making us angry. We angry outbursts to our spouse or somebody else about that person. And Paul doesn't really differentiate here between the object or the location of your angry outburst. He just cites it as a relational problem. And not just a relational problem, to be crystal clear with you, a sin that Jesus died for. In other words, we could think of it this way. If no other sin on the planet had ever been committed by anyone at any time, Jesus would have had to die on the cross for your angry outbursts and mine. And then he moves on from that, and he talks about this hostility. Hostility is a little bit different. It's, it's someone who's not concerned about the community. They're concerned about winning. Their, only, their main chief focus is being thought well of, being respected, being seen as right. They're willing to burn it to the ground if it serves them and feel completely justified while doing it because, you know what? I'm right and you're wrong. And they think that it's courage and integrity. And what it is, is self-righteousness and pride. There are things to burn the ship down over. There are things to sink it. They're super few and far between. They're incredibly rare. Do you know what they are? The core of the gospel. The reality is relationally in Corinth, they're willing to destroy everything. You know, Jesus, when he gets to the book of Revelation, he says, there's some churches I'm going to snuff out 
the candle. I just want to point out, he's the one snuffing, not you and me. People that are prone to anger and hostility will refuse to lay aside their anger. They will refuse to acknowledge its unrighteousness. They will, they will continue to push for an agenda. I just want to ask you do, you, do you tend to operate that way? Do you tend to operate on the knife's edge? Well, there's this, and I'm going to, mm. And you don't really think about the ripples in the pond. I'm going to throw this rock. Yesterday we went down to the river. It was, it was so much fun. We're walking up by the river walk. I don't know if you've done this down by the zoo, but you should go down there. It's super smooth, well done, safe. And as we're coming up out of it, there's this little girl walking down. And, and, and I have a daughter, and those parents were clearly at the age with this daughter. Whatever she wanted to wear that day, she was going to wear. And so she's dressed full on pink tutu Disney World, right? That's what she's got going on. I don't know, three, four, five, probably older than three, probably four or five. And she's got this huge rock. And, and her mom turns around and is trying to say, ah, uh, let's put the, and she wants to show you. So it's kind of funny because it's like princess, like, let me show you my, my power move, right? Like clean and, and jerk snatch, whatever. Ah! And the rock goes up and she goes down. Right, on, right down on the tutu, if you know what I'm saying, right? And she got the rock, but she did not want to let this rock go. And I look at her, and she looked at me, and I don't know if it was, but like you could tell she didn't want to cry, but that hurt. Like you could, I mean, that was signals going. But she didn't want to let go of the rock. And her mom had to be like, we're going to put this rock over here. You know what, there are people, and, and I'm just being honest with you, you're in this room, and you'll let the rock fall on you. And you don't want to let go of it. It doesn't matter the harm that's happening to you or anyone else around you. you don't, you're just not willing to let it go. And you will justify that behavior as somehow righteous and standing for Jesus while it's destroying relationships all around you. Corinth. Then thirdly, he goes to slander and gossip. Oh. These guys, if insecurities and fears drive us to quarreling and jealousy, to cliques and factions, which come out in emotional anger, it evidences an unethical tactics to win, and the, the actual weapons that are used by folks struggling here are slander and gossip. He presses on here, even though I just want to tie this in, when he says conceit and disorder, he's telling you the heart that's really going on here, and it's a heart of pride and a willingness to just mess everything up because it serves you. Slander is our lies. There's, it's lying about somebody. It's a falsehood, direct or implied, that damages someone's reputation. It, you, can, you can do slander by telling half-truths, by leaving blanks for the other person to fill in. I'm going I'm to tell you a story, and I'm going to let you think what you want to think, right? That's, how, that's the way we present it. But reality is we know we're telling the story in such a way that's going to control the way they think. That's going to inform the way they think about this other person, and it's going to make them or open the door for them to think about this other person in a way that's not true, that's harmful to their name, harmful to their reputation. Gossip are things that are true. Stories, tales, opinions shared about someone that would or could cause someone else to think less of them. One of the most helpful things that I've read in studying about slander and gossip was written by another pastor. 
he points out that when you study the Bible on this area, specifically on gossip, is you should think less, you and I should think less of gossip as a sin we do than as a person we are. And so whether it's through the Proverbs or other texts of Scripture, with the picture that starts to frame about a gossip, and this matches what Jesus says, because Jesus says what comes out of our mouth is what's in our heart. And so it's who we are. It's being evident. So the reality is most of all this other stuff is going on. The conceit, the disorder, uh, the anger, the wanting a crowd, my insecurity, my fear. I need you to be my friend and not their friend. I need you to side with me and not with them. I need you to like me and not them. And so we're going to start sharing things about people. Either, either they're just blatant lies, half-truths, or that are true, but we know it's going to create a narrative of the way they perceive this other person. Have you ever been gossiped about? If you're alive, you have been. You ever gossiped? If you're alive, you have. I guarantee it. It's so easy to do. And so this one pastor goes on and he actually identifies five different kinds of gossips that I think are really helpful. First one is the spy. Proverbs eleven thirteen. This is the person who betrays confidence. It's the kind of person who's fueled by the power of information. They love to know stuff about other people. And they understand that to be a, a well of information gives you power over other people. One of the examples that this pastor gave that I think is really, really helpful is he talked about one girl being raised in a family where anything that happened, every aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa knew about it. And it was just couched under the fact, well, it's family. And it was informing the way other people thought about this person in a negative way. And so this girl, this one girl, she grows up into a teen, she becomes a woman, and as she gets older, she learns, what do I deal with this? How do I deal with a family where everything I do, positive or negative, gets shared with everybody? She became very closed, withdrawn, wouldn't be open or vulnerable with anyone, not even her husband. Because she had learned the pain of suddenly people knowing things about you and then thinking poorly of you. You have the grumbler. They don't go to the person that they have a concern with, but instead they tell other people their concerns. They're marked by complaining and criticizing. What comes out of them is, is irritation. And, and most grumbling and complaining typically is towards some kind of authority or somebody that you think was supposed to help you or make a good decision. You don't like it, and so there's a grumbling and complaining about it. We all know, and we've all done that kind of thing. They, they, they have a conflict, maybe, maybe even with a peer, and instead of going to that person and handling the conflict, they, they couch it with this. Well, let me tell you what happened, or, well, so-and-so did this to me, or this happened with me and them. And instead of them going in love, and, and, and so they say, well, I don't think it's Matthew 18. Good, then you've got two other options, forbear in love, forbear, or overlook in love. Those are your, so you've got three options. Someone hurts you, someone sins against you, they've wounded you, they've bothered you, they've irritated you, those are your three options. Go to them, zippeth your lippeth, and forbear them, 
or humbly own you're no better than them and overlook it in love. There's your three options. There's your trifecta. Here's option four that most people go with, not an option. Tell somebody else about it under the guise of getting their wisdom, their counsel, and their support. That's gossip. Well, I was friends with them and they hurt me and I see this other person becoming friends with them and I'm afraid they're going to hurt them too. So really, I'm loving my friend. No, you're loving you. He moves on from that one. He points out the backstabber. And that's exactly the kind that you see here in 2 Corinthians. These are people that are motivated actually by revenge. A desire to hurt those that have hurt them. Uh, I, like, I, I don't know who said it first. Just, as long as we all know, it's not original with me. Hurt people hurt people. And they want some payback. They want some affirmation. They want some support. They want some encouragement. They want to tear down. And so there's all this gossiping and out of this malicious, backstabbing way in Corinth. I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom. I, I think the closest we can get to the pain that Paul is experiencing here because of the language he uses with um, being like a father to them and loving them and caring for them and loving them deeply and literally leaving out of a business meeting with them where he's just being railed on and no one will stand for the truth and he's weeping he talks about being weeping in tears and agony all this is from people that he had gone to had never heard of him never heard of jesus had no idea and paul at his own expense working his fingers to the bone had gone there to live where in a year and a half and say let me show you who jesus is let me help you come from your sins into salvation and go from being an orphan in your sin to being adopted by god those are the people that are doing this to him like the pain of that the closest you can come i think is a parent who is just loved and poured into a child only for the child to become a reprobate prodigal who blames the parents there's a backstabber what do you do with your hurt there's the busybody. you see it in first timothy 5 13 uh, he points out, it's when he's talking about widows, and he talks about how they've served God well, they're ministering well, and that they're not a busybody. Well, what does that mean? And, and so I don't think, <laughs> lots of people, right? So let me not get in this camp. There's the whole camp. Gossip and slander is a woman problem. Like somehow estrogen drives it. Uh-uh, not in that camp. Steve not with them. I'm way over here. I think it's a human sin problem. Last time I checked, women are humans. So are men. It ain't estrogen or testosterone, it's called the flesh. So why does he go after that in 1 Timothy 5? And we can learn from this, and here's what it is. It's people who maybe don't have enough to do. See, when life's busy, and you're invested a lot in just doing life, getting through, so you're like trying to do everything you can just to do work, handle some family relationships, some community, get your jobs done, and love Jesus. It kills a lot of opportunity for gossip. And lots of those things actually reveal all your weaknesses. And so it can tend to make you humble. doesn't always make you humble, but it can make you humble and you realize, man, people are putting up with me. This is hard to do. And that helps to kill your willingness to talk information about other people. But when you and I don't have enough to do, and let me put it this way, when you and I aren't loving God and others enough with our time, 
It's easy to use our time to talk about people. Information becomes power. Maybe their lives feel emptier. Or maybe there's not a lot going on in their life that when they get together with other people, they don't have a lot to share that's interesting. And so information about others is particularly appetizing to them. They feast on knowing and sharing. I think that's actually supremely helpful because it should inform us this way. Areas in my life where I'm lonely or alone doesn't mean I will become a gossip, but they are a door of temptation to gossip. And then lastly is the chameleon. Now this pastor identifies it, and I agree with him. There's no specific text that I could point your hearts to, but this is, the, this is the reality. Anytime there's gossip or slander, there's at least two people involved in that sin. And what, what title do we give the person who's listening? And so I think he helpfully identifies them as a chameleon. This is the person that's suddenly in this gossipy conversation and they go along to get along. They lack the courage to stop the talk. They lack the love to confront the sin. They lack the wherewithal to stand against the community-destroying behavior. This is you're standing around the water cooler and everybody else is sharing these, these stories about this boss that they don't like and it's all gossip. And you're standing there and maybe even in that moment, you either don't have a bad story or you have a bad story, but you're like, man, I really shouldn't share that story. But you're sitting there sipping your water and, and there's not enough love in you. It's not courage, it's love. Because perfect love is what casts out fear. There's not enough love in you to say, hey guys, I don't think this is helpful. As a matter of fact, I think this is harmful. And I'm not going to participate in it. You know and I know what's going to happen in that moment, don't we? Like, yes, like, just to be fair, Jesus can show up in a miraculous way, rain down conviction, and there'll be mass revival in your workplace. I'm not, I'm not even saying that mocking. That can happen. You and I also both know that doesn't tend to be the way Jesus shows up. And instead, in that moment, what you're going to experience is the next time you walk up to the water cooler, everybody stops talking. And you know it's because they're talking now about you. or to a family member, or to a church member. The chameleon actually participates in the sins of gossip and slander, whether they've opened their mouth at all. Where does this help? I think it's helpful to consider, where are you insecure? Where are we jealous? Where are we bored? Where are we irritated? Where are we lonely? Where are we struggling to submit Every one of those were wide open doors to embrace gossip and slander. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Do your words produce life? Do they speak resurrection power? Would you say these things about that person to Jesus? You know what? The last time I checked, when Satan says bad things about me, Jesus says, silence, he's mine. So I got to believe the next time I'm saying something about someone else, if I were saying that to Jesus, I got to believe what I'd actually hear is, silence, O oh evil one. They're mine. 
Do your words speak life or do they speak death? He then goes to passion sins, sexual immorality, and sensuality. I'm not going to spend a long time here. We've worked through these as we've gone through Corinthians. But what it means is it's a person who's just ruled by their own desires. Uh, Sexual desire and sexual immorality are ways of feeling accepted, loved, and affirmed. It's where you find yourself the most vulnerable, the most revealed, both physically and emotionally. And so instead of finding your acceptance, your love, your affirmation, your approval, your worth, and your value in Jesus, you find it in the sexual experience. They believe God will excuse, ignore, and not deal with their immorality. It tends to be hidden. It tends to be in secret. This has been this long, ongoing issue, and Paul's patience and grace have come to this point. It's not that grace has gone as empty, but now grace is going to become discipline. Rebuke and discipline are coming. He says, I'm coming. When I come, everything established, two or three witnesses. Either these folks are lost or they are unrepentant believers. The only way forward is in truth and a call to holiness. If relational sins destroy the fabric of the community, passion sins destroy the very purpose of the community, the gospel itself. Because they say the life-transforming, life-altering soul Life-giving power of the gospel doesn't change this. The Corinthians are really no different from NASA, Neville Chamberlain, Thailand officials. None of them are actually any different from Peter. The warnings are ignored because they feel different from the very current sense of their self. I've just walked through a number of sins, and, and we should take them as warnings. Warnings are ignored, though, because it feels different. Maybe, maybe when you've gossiped or slandered or been, had outbursts of anger or refused to just submit to God's work in your life, maybe you've found all kinds of ways. As a matter of fact, I guarantee you found all kinds of ways to justify it. I'm just sharing. I'm, it's a prayer request. It's, it's this. Can I tell you how many times I've been stunned to talk to somebody I've never talked to and they've known some nitty-gritty detail about my life? I'm like, I never... I actually know the one person I talked to about that. And lots of times that has happened, and it hasn't been something bad. But I guarantee you, your experience is the same as mine, where you suddenly found someone pull back from you or act different towards you, and if you ever able to track it down, you found out some folks were saying things about you. And that's really hard because then some of us wrestle with fear of man, which is its own sin. And anytime we're not hanging out with somebody, we just assume they're talking about it. Like, how do we deal with this? We must not ignore the warning. We must own what's going on in our hearts and minds. My sinful heart wants what I want. My sinful heart wants acceptance instead of resting in acceptance from Christ. My sinful heart hides sin instead of confessing and repenting. My sinful heart thinks that these, these are small sins. This isn't a big deal. My sinful heart thinks that sitting through a sermon like this, it's okay that my mind has been thinking all about how much this other person needs it. Oh. The Thessalonians embrace the truth about who they are and what they need. I just want to return you even to Thessalonians when Paul addresses them. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he says it this way. Remember before God and the Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Do you want a tender heart? Do you want to be a teachable person? Not just, so what do you, how do you become a teachable community? 
Teachable communities made up of teachable individuals. How do you and I become teachable people? It's persistent pursuit of knowing and believing in the person and character of God. How are you doing chasing after God? The labor of love that he gives in 1 Thessalonians is particularly hard work. It looks forward to profiting. In other words, it understands I'm going to sow in love for a really, really, really long time sacrificially before there's ever fruitfulness from it. And not just your friends. Jesus makes it so clear. The test of the believer's love is not how well we love people that we like, we enjoy spending time with, or people that are like us. It's how well do we love strangers. Steadfastness of hope is a confident belief that what God says about your past is true, what he says about your future is true, and so that informs how you do today. Man, I don't know about you, I finished studying this week, and I'm like, yee, I got some issues. So Peter ignores all these warnings, betrays Christ. And he's like, I'm done. Goes back to fishing. Jesus can't use me. In other words, you're all defeated, right? So there's people that take conviction and they turn it into personal defeat that refuses to endure. So I don't want that. That's not good. It's not good for Peter, not good for you, not good for me. So instead, what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up at the shore and he tells Peter, and the other guys, he goes, hey, let's have breakfast. Peter jumps out the boat, swims to shore. I've got to prove now my love. Jesus is like, I, you know, let me bring, I've got a fire going. Bring me a fish. Peter goes and drags the whole net of fish. I mean, just, it's like insecurities all over him, right? And, and, and he drags the whole fish, and the whole net. Jesus cooks a couple fish. This, you know, a couple dudes and Jesus aren't eating a whole net. A fish. Jesus makes, makes them breakfast. Jesus is serving him. He's loving him. And then Jesus puts it down, right? Do you love me? Oh, are you kidding me? Asks him three times, and he tells him what to do. Then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. You know what Jesus says to you and I? He doesn't say, in the midst of your conviction, walk away defeated. He says, in the midst of your conviction, confess and repent and realize I'm doing this work, I'm doing this revealing in your heart because I want to use you. I think it's fascinating that what Peter, where Peter sinned with was his mouth and what Jesus tells him is go use your mouth. But let what comes out of your mouth be what's in your heart and let me, love for me, let that be what rules your speech. Can I just call you to Jesus today? Can I call you to be teachable people who recognize in this moment, this is not some false guilt, that's conviction you're feeling. And the way you respond to conviction is with confession and repentance and enjoying the warm, accepting embrace of a Savior who bears the scars in his hand where he died for you. And he calls us then to be teachable communities because we're a repentant community and we will embrace trusted ministry 